My name is Waz, and I'm on staff here. Uh, and Kelly is out of town, and we are actually in between uh, a series uh, we just finished up called I Quit, and next week we're going to be starting a brand new one. Uh, and in the meantime, I get to talk uh, about something that doesn't have to do with either of those two series. Um, but I sort of want to start out with a question. You guys know the movie Up, right? Yeah. Disney movie. Uh, basically, if you don't know it, it's like the story about an old guy whose wife dies and he adopts a Boy Scout uh, <laughs> that looks like Mikey <laughs> Madison. Um, and he adopts his dog, too. All right, classic, classic, Disney, uh, classic Disney story, right? Um, have you ever wondered if the whole, like, Up concept with the the house flying away in the balloons and stuff, like that would actually be possible? Yes. Yeah, right? Uh, it's an interesting question. And the fact is that it is actually possible. Um, see, there is actually a real life up story, um, not with like the dog and the, the Mikey Madison Boy Scout and all that stuff. Um, and it's actually one of my favorite stories. And I think it pretty accurately captures sort of like the soul or like the spirit uh, of this generation. Basically, it's the story of this one college guy, and it's a true story, uh, named Larry. Right, it already sounds made up. <laughs> Who's actually named Larry? But it's this college guy named Larry, and um, Larry got kind of bored with his life. Uh, so um, if there's a Larry in here, I'm sorry. Um, your name is not a made-up name. It's a real name. No offense. Okay, so Larry got bored with his life, uh, and he decided that he was going to go to an Army-Navy surplus store, and he bought 48 used Army weather balloons, or Navy weather balloons, all right? And he did that, quote, so he could observe his neighborhood from a slightly different angle. And um, two and a half hours later, LAX identified a unidentified flying object um, 12,500 feet in the air. That's two and a half miles up in the sky. Uh, what had happened is that Larry had tied these balloons to a lawn chair, um, and he brought along with him a little BB gun, and he thought to himself, I'm going to cut the cord, and then I'm going to slowly float up, like in the movie Up, uh, to the right altitude. And once I actually reach that altitude, I'm going to shoot these balloons so I can just, like, kind of hover and float at the right altitude. And if I want to slowly go down, I'll keep shooting them, and I'll slowly make my way down. Um, well, contrary to what he thought would happen, he didn't slowly float up. He basically shot out, like, out of a cannon up into the sky. Um, and he, reporters uh, asked him what he did after shooting up into the sky. And, and he said that he did the only thing that he knows how to do when he's afraid or nervous or scared or depressed. He drank. Um, Larry, Larry brought a six-pack with him because he thought, it was like, okay, I'm going to chill up here a few hours, kind of like watch, uh, look at the neighborhood and stuff. Um, so he, he freaked out, and he's like, you know what, I'm just going to drink, because, like, this is probably going to be the end. Um, and he has two beers, and because of the altitude, that, like, really messes with his blood alcohol content, and he passed out uh, in, his, uh, in his lawn chair two, two miles up in the sky. Um, yeah, and that's when uh, a 747 flying into LAX uh, radios the control tower, and I can't even imagine what it would have been like for the control tower. But, but the, the, the pilot tells the control tower, they're like, uh, there is a dead guy in a lawn chair up here. Um, and immediately LAPD, like, they enacted a rescue mission that would have made Jack Bauer proud. Um, and 
and they get him. They bring him down safely, and um, the first people that get to him, obviously, are the police, and they end up giving him a ticket for obstructing airport traffic. Um, the second people that got to him were the reporters, right? And the reporters asked him, hey, Larry, why did you do this? And um, he made a statement that I feel really captures uh, sort of like the heart of this generation really well. Um, he said that I got tired of always sitting around. Got tired of always sitting around. Have you guys ever felt like that? Just like tired of just sitting, just like not really doing anything uh, with life. Um, the reason I bring this up is because some of you might feel that way, right? Like some of you might think like, I hate working or I hate the thought of having to work a nine to five job one day, uh, a dead end job in a cubicle or whatever. I don't want to live for the weekend like so many people do. I don't want to live for retirement. I want to do something that actually matters in life, something that has eternal significance, right? And, and you think maybe like, that's something I want, but the reality is that's not going to be my story. Like, I'm going to end up living a pretty normal life, right? If the Christian were like, uh, if the Christian life were like the military, right, it would be like regular Christians are like privates and like pastors and church staff or whatever, or like generals and like missionaries. They're like the hardcore like Navy SEALs of Christians. Like, they're the one who's go on like all kinds of adventures. And you might think like, man, I'm just destined to be like, a private, just doing grunt work. Yeah, like maybe I'll give money to the church, maybe I'll volunteer uh, for a ministry here or there, or maybe I'll go on a mission trip for like a week or two. But for the most part, like the real stuff um, happens with the people who are pastors or the people who are missionaries uh, or whatever. And if that's sort of like your mindset, I just want to tell you guys like that is absolutely wrong. That's not the way the Christian life goes. Right? If you are a Christ follower, that means that you are sent to make an impact. If you're a Christ follower, that means you're sent to make an impact. And, and the fact is this word sent should actually describe every person who calls themselves a Christ follower. You see, in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this word sent to describe himself 44 times. And he says that this sentness would be true of his disciples as well. In fact, he says that if any person would follow me, Right? He will be sent as I was sent. Right? You can't be a disciple and not be sent by Jesus. But the fact is, like, being sent isn't this sort of um, responsibility or role of the elite few. Right? It's not the role of just these missionaries uh, that we think sort of make up the Navy SEALs uh, of Christians. It's part of who we are as a Christ follower. Right? And here's the thing. Uh, tonight... I want to talk about this. And sort of what I want to do is I want to help you realize that the details of your life, your gifts, your opportunities, your past, all of those things were orchestrated by God so that you can live as someone sent with a purpose. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we just um, go ahead and pray, uh, and then we'll open up to the book of Esther. Lord, um, I thank you just first off for your word uh, that you give us, Lord, that teaches us, that helps us to know what it means to live uh, as Christ followers, Lord. Um, I pray that tonight um, that you would just speak to the people here, Lord, that you would uh, just speak so clearly, uh, that you would challenge us and encourage us um, to live the lives that you've called us to live. 
Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Um, it's a little book kind of in the middle of the Bible. Um, if you can't find it, you can use your table of contents. It'll be helpful. And if you still can't find it, um, it is on about page 400 in my Bible. All right? Um, that might not help you, but that's where it's at in mine. Um, and if that still doesn't help you, uh, we're going to have uh, parts of it up on the screen. All right, so Esther chapter 4. Um, kind of let me summarize the story uh, of up to this point, chapters 1 through 3. So basically, the, the story takes place in modern-day Iran, uh, about 483 B.C., 100 years after Israel went off into exile. Right? And they're living as refugees in this foreign land. Uh, and this time, after living through a bunch of different kings, they're living under King Xerxes uh, in Persia. And Esther 1 begins with the story of Xerxes just getting absolutely just drunk, right? Like, he's smashed, he's bombed, he's trashed, he's lit. Um, <laughs> any other words that I'm, like, forgetting? He, oh, I don't know about that. Um, anyway, so he's inebriated. Perfect. He's inebriated. Um, anyway, he's really drunk, and he's hanging out with all of his buddies, right? And, you know, like, when drunk people get around other friends who are drunk, uh, they tend to have really awesome ideas. Not like awesome as in like good awesome, but like awesome as in like this is going to be interesting to watch or like this is going to go viral. Anyway, so um, that he has this idea, right? And verse 11, chapter 1 says this. This is his idea. Uh, his idea is to bring before him Queen Vashti, his wife, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was very lovely to look at. Right now, scholars sort of debate exactly what this phrase means, uh, but either way, either she has to come out um, with her face unveiled, which at that time, and even nowadays in that region, would have been scandalous, or straight up wearing nothing but her crown. Um, you know, with some like Barry White playing in the background, like some like bow chicka bow wow kind of music, whatever. Like that's, that's what he wants his wife to come out and do in front of all of his friends, right? Um, and she's like, Heck no, like, I am not going out there to do that. Um, and he's left totally embarrassed, right? Like, so one of his wise men, totally like a drunk guy sort of thing to say, um, he, he, he says to him, he's like, man, like, this is serious. Like, your woman just said no to you in front of everyone. You need to, like, take one for the team, man. Like, you need to take care of this issue, or women everywhere are going to start thinking that they can do whatever the heck they want, uh, they're going to start bossing their husbands around. Women are going to think that they're in charge. <laughs> uh, okay, that's uh, not exactly the point of the message, but um, but anyway, <laughs> doesn't that just sound like a bunch of just like drunk dudes like just talking? Anyway, so um, so he uh, so he follows up on his wise men supposedly quote wise men's idea, uh, and he gets rid of his wife. Um, and then he holds the Persian version of The Bachelor. Um, yeah, that's, that's actually what happens. Um, verse 2 in chapter 2 says this. Let there be a search made for beautiful young virgins. Not exactly like The Bachelor. Um, I mean, hey, real, true, just speaking truth here. 
speaking truth here. Um, I mean, I've never watched it, but I know, like, <laughs> I know, like, the radio has, like, a bachelor report every morning, uh, every Tuesday morning or whenever it is. Anyway, um, so it says, uh, let, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king, then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So this little Jewish orphan girl, uh, not little, she's not Annie. Uh, so this Jewish orphan girl um, named Esther joins The Bachelor. Um, verse 7 says uh, that she was lovely in form and figure, which in the original Hebrew, interesting fact, that actually means she was hot. Like, that's, that's just what it means. Um, um, so, yeah, she was attractive. She was good looking. Um, and, and they do whatever they do on these kinds of shows, you know, like they dress them up, make them compete for his love. They take place in, like, contests and stuff. Um, and at the end of the night, just like some episodes in The Bachelor, right, um, each contestant ends up sleeping with the king. Um, I mean, let, let's just stop here for a second. Um, most of you have probably heard this story growing up uh, in Sunday school if you grew up in the church. Right, and you were probably taught what? Veggie tales. Yeah, you didn't see this on Veggie Tales, right? Um, uh, but really, you were taught that Esther, Esther um, was a paradigm of, of Christian virtue, right? Um, and that this was sort of like a Miss America contest, something like that, right? And the reality is, though, that this is actually a lot more scandalous than that. Right, let's not whitewash it. Like she straight up enters into a sex contest to see who can please the king the best. Right? And the fact is she wins. Like the Bible says she wins hands down. And that's not exactly like the model for good Christian behavior. Right? And to add to that, like the fact that she was silent. Like she was com- she completely hid her belief in God throughout this whole thing and won the contest. Right? And that doesn't come out sort of until the end, right? And, and the point is that she can't be described as a model of Christian virtue at this point, right? But th- we see that change over time. Right? And she, she ends up the story just being completely transformed. Um, but that's not how it starts, right? So Esther, she ends up getting the final rose, and Haman, who is basically the prime minister of Persia, uh, he decides um, through some interpersonal conflict, he decides that the Jews are a problem, right? So he tells Xerxes that there's this big problem in his kingdom. Uh, the Jews don't want to listen to him. They don't want to obey the laws and stuff. Um, and he gets them to sign this, um, this law that basically puts an end to the Jewish population in, in Persia. Um, well, a Jew named Mordecai ends up hearing what happened, right? And it just so happens to be that he's Esther's uncle. Right? And he tells Esther, he's like, hey, Esther, like, you have to do something about this, right? Or all of us are going to get destroyed. So she sends him a message basically telling him, like, what, what the heck do you want me to do? Like, remember what happened to Vashti? Like, she, she's not, like, around anymore. Uh, the law says that if anyone comes to the king without his permission, like, that's straight up a death wish. And Mordecai's response to her in this moment is timeless, Chapter 4, verse 13. This is the main um, sort of passage for us today. 4.13 says, He sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for a time as this. And his confidence is just mind-blowing here. Like God is actually going to accomplish his purpose one way or another, regardless of whether or not you take part in it. But hopefully, you're going to. Hopefully, you're going to get to play a part in it. And Esther responds in verse 16. She says to him, Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Short version of the story is um, God uses her bravery to save Israel. Uh, King changes his mind. Jews are saved. Haman's put to death. And everybody lives happily ever after. Um, And that's our passage for tonight. That's, That's the story that we're looking at. And what I want to do tonight with the rest of the time we have left is I just want to point out two facts uh, from this story, two things that we draw from it, right? And these two things are meant to help you live out your sentence, right? The first thing is that you need to get forgiveness and get going. You get forgiveness and get going. See, in the story, um, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, recognizes that God sovereignly placed Esther in the palace as a part of his plan. You might think, like, wait, didn't you just say that, like, the reason she even got there was because of these sinful actions and things that she did, keeping silent about God, taking part in The Bachelor, all that sort of stuff? It's like, yeah, like, that is actually how she got there. But somewhere, and it doesn't tell us exactly where or how, she became a godly woman. She started living out her faith, right? And somehow she recognizes that even with a shady past, right, God still had a purpose for her life and that God's agenda was above everything else and it was a thing that mattered the most to her, right? Maybe you think, like, you know, maybe I'm kind of like an Esther. Like, maybe I have things uh, in my past that, that have been mistakes, and it might even actually be whitewashing it to call them mistakes. Like, you might have done some straight-up really bad stuff. Like, you were a bad hombre. Like, that's, that's who you were, right? Um, maybe you did some stuff uh, that you regret in your life, right? Um, stuff you wish with your whole heart that you could take back, but you actually can't. And I know that might sound harsh, but you can't take back those things, right? You can't actually erase those things. But the truth is that God does something better than just erase them or make you forget them or minimize the importance of them, saying that, like, actually, they weren't that bad all along. God recognizes how bad things might have been, right? He recognizes the seriousness of your past sin, and he treats it with the seriousness it deserves. But here's the thing. When you come to God, he doesn't dwell on your past. Your past was already taken care of 2,000 years ago. Right? So God isn't worried about your past. God is doing, uh, is worried, not worried, but like God is focused on what he's doing in you and through you now. You see, God is not just the God of the cross. Right? God is the God of the resurrection. Right? Like, yeah, you need to deal, you need to get forgiveness from him for your past. You need to deal with the consequences. You might need to make restitution with the people that you've harmed because of your actions, right? You need to deal with the earthly consequences of stuff. 
but you need to get forgiveness and get going. Like that's what God is calling you to do. Like God gives you hope for a future. He doesn't give you condemnation for your past. Right? And I've mentioned this story several times before. Um, so forgive me if you guys have already heard it. But uh, a while ago when I was back in Liberia, um, I met this man uh, named General Butt Naked. That was his, uh, his nickname. Uh, anyway, so this guy was known, um, that true story, that's his, that's his name. Uh, this, uh, this guy was known for being one of the most brutal and vicious warlords during Liberia's civil war. Uh, and he was known for having committed probably some of the worst and most heinous crimes. Murder, rape, child torture, um, training child soldiers, cannibalism, like you name it. Like that was on the list of things that he did, right? The list goes on and on and on. But the fact is Christ came into that man's life, right? And he was convicted and he did a straight up just 180, right? And did he have earthly consequences to face? Yeah, he did. Did he have to look at the victims and the victims' families in the eyes and ask for forgiveness? Yeah, he did. But did he become unusable by God because of what he did? No, he didn't. Right? The mystery of God's redemption is that he not only forgives your past, but that he re reuses it for his purposes. This general is now just honestly one of the most joyful godly men that I've ever met. Right? And he's an ardent evangelist, eager to share the message of, of God's forgiveness to people. Because he knows, like, to whom much is forgiven, much is expected. Right? And not only that, but now he helps rehabilitate some of those people, uh, some of those people who grew up as child soldiers, um, kind of like the people that he had trained. Right? Where most society despises these former child soldiers or are afraid of them or don't know what to do with them, he's not afraid. And these kids actually respect him because they know that he's seen the things that they've seen. They know that he's been through the kinds of things that he's been through, that they've been through. They see that if God can change this man, then who's done like all these horrible things, then honestly he could change somebody like me. Right? God used his dark past as a light to those who are still living in darkness, right? So the point here is that Esther shows us something. It shows us that you just need to accept and receive God's forgiveness and get going and moving with what he's done in your life, right? So don't obsess over what you can't change. God has a plan to use the dark parts of your life and your story to help you live out your sentence, all right? So here's the second thing you need to know if you're gonna live out this call. The second thing is, is that you need to know that your place is in the palace. This doesn't really make a ton of sense. But if you look at Esther's life, you'll notice um, that her influence was in the palace. Right? It wasn't in the temple. Right? In other words, her work isn't ministry. She wasn't a pastor. She wasn't a preacher. She wasn't a priest. She doesn't work in the temple or today what we would call like the church or something. Right? She was in the palace. Uh, there's this author uh, and theologian, Ray Bake, um, and he writes um, about ministry in the city. And he basically writes that there are three sorts of paradigms of sentiness that we see uh, during the Old Testament uh, when Israel is off into exile. The first is uh, Ezra, people who are like Ezra. And basically their role is to teach God's word. Right? And today this is like pastors, church staff, whatever, uh, those kind of people who equip God's people. 
right? The second paradigm is Nehemiah. And if you remember, Nehemiah is the one who went back to Jerusalem, helped rebuild the wall and the city and all that sort of stuff. Uh, basically, he's like an urban developer. And these are the kinds of people who have a heart for the city, to see it restored, to see it flourish, um, to see it change. The third kind of paradigm is Esther. These are people who work a secular job, right? And they have influence precisely because of that job, right? Bake points out that God used all three kinds of people to bring restoration during the exile, right? One is not more important than the other. All three are actually needed if God's people are going to accomplish their purposes, right? And the truth is, even today, like, we need Ezra's. We need Nehemiah's. We need Esther's. Because as the church, if we don't have people who are doing all those three kinds of things, we're not going to be able to live out the sentence. With only Ezra's or only Esther's, like, it would be incomplete, right? And the heart of this church is not to have all of you quit your jobs and enter into the ministry. Um, that would be bad because we don't have enough office space in here uh, for all you guys. Um, we need Esther's and Nehemiah's. But the problem is that in the church, we have somehow come to assume that the Ezra's of this world are the ones who are really doing God's work, right? But the fact is we need Christians who are good at music, who are good at uh, medicine, at art, business, film, organization, whatever. Like that's, we need those kinds of people. And some of you have those gifts in here. The church needs people who have gifts, who have passions. We need people like you to be out there doing your job, <laughs> literally like your job, right? Because the fact is us Christians in general are really bad at creating culture. Like we kind of suck at that sort of thing, which is weird because God's one of God's main characteristics is to be a creator, right? And, and the fact is we kind of suck at being innovative, right? We tend to mimic whatever culture is into and put like a little Christian spin on stuff and think that, that is what it means to be relevant. So you get really lame like music. You get really lame movies. Um, you get really lame bumper stickers. Um, yeah, like bumper stickers, right? Like, for example, let me um, throw up a couple. Most of them are kind of, um, yeah, right, okay. So, like, kind of <laughs> passive-aggressive, right? Um, I think that's, like, being relevant to culture. Um, not... Not straight up, like, that one you'd think, like, that's nice. Um, that one is actually Psalm 109.8. If you look it up, uh, it talks about making his days short. Uh, so um, kind of passive-aggressive. Um, some are just straight-up confusing. It's like, how do you read that? Like, another against Christian Bush, another Christian against Bush. Um, I don't even know, like, what that would mean. Um, and stuff like that, right? Just trying to be relevant during election season. Um, but the fact is, like, if this is what it means to be relevant, then, like, throw in the towel, because, like, we're done, right? Um, like, really, we need uh, believers who live upstream uh, in the world, being the best possible at what they do. Right? I think of um, musicians like the rapper Lecrae, um, who's creating the kind of music that is actually deeply Christian, right? But he's writing it in such a way that even non-Christians have to say, like, you know, like, that's, that's legit. That's, like, really good stuff. Um, for example, just the other day, he was on the radio uh, doing an interview about uh, his new project and his new song. 
um, and not Christian radio, um, that's what happens, right? Like when you, when you take what you have passions for and are skilled at and do it with excellence, right? Other people begin to recognize that and that gives us uh, a door and a voice into places that normally Christian voices wouldn't be heard. Right? So God has placed us in the palaces of this world in order to have influence. Right? So if that's true, then the question is, how do I leverage my place in the palace for God's kingdom? How do I leverage my place in the palace? And let's just start with the obvious, right? First off, you can use your place to share Christ. Like that's just the most obvious like application of that, right? Like the truth is no one can live out or explain the gospel to your coworkers or your classmates better than you can. That means like if you're a nuclear physicist, um, I don't know if any of you will be nuclear physicists, but um, if you're a nuclear physicist, you can speak to nuclear physicists in a way that I can't, right? Because they don't trust me. Like I don't know the difference between fusion and fission or how many atoms exist in um. I don't know, like in a nuclear bomb, like is that, that's like what they do, right? Like, um, or the Hadron uh, Collider, um, <laughs> Electron Collider. Um, you see, like I, I just start talking to them and they'd be like, no, like if I can't trust you on like the basics, like how am I supposed to trust you in my eternal destiny, right? Um, it would be the same. Like if I was in a group of actors or musicians or comedians, like that wouldn't work. Why? Because I'm not any of those things, right? But you are. And the fact is that God wants to use you in the places that he's placed you in. Do you guys know that 37 out of 40 miracles in the book of Acts take place outside of the church? 37 out of 40. That means that for those of you who don't work in a church, you have 37 fortieths of God's power, all right? Um, <laughs> me and Kelly only have 3% of the power. Um, no, that's not how, like, God's math works. Uh, but the fact is, um, the point of all of that is that you guys who are not working in a church, right, are actually on the front lines. You guys are actually where the action is at. Like, have you ever thought to yourself, like, you know, I have, like, like all these gifts, all these talents. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> cocky, right? Uh, um you thought, yeah, you probably thought like, hey, like I have certain things that I'm passionate about and good at. That sounds a little less cocky. Um, can I actually like use any of these things for God's purposes? The fact is you can, right? You can absolutely do that sort of stuff. Uh, one way you can do that um, is, I mean, it sounds weird, but one reason why God gives us jobs is that so we can help support the work of the ministry, Right? So, like, we're passionate about things, we're good at things, um, we get jobs in those things, um, we take care of our family with the money that we make, we take care of God's mission with that money that we make, right? That's what generosity um, towards God is all about, right? And that's obviously not the message for today. But, like, also, what you can do with those gifts and those skills is you can use them to serve this community, right? God might want to have you use those skills that you've learned out in the palace, and bring them inside to the temple, right? Our service teams, for example, are an excellent opportunity to do that, right? Like, are you good at building stuff? We have a nuts and bolts team for that. Yeah, good job building things. Uh, uh, um, yeah, 
Uh, do you have an eye for aesthetics? Like, we have people who decorate stuff, right? Um, are you a culinary master? Fish and loaves can use you. Yeah, there you go. Um, are you addicted to coffee? Right? Help feed other people's addictions. Um, we need you to do that. Hojin needs you. Right? Um, you might have some other skill. And if you do, um, some other skill that I haven't talked about. And if you do, like, hey, talk to us about that. Talk to Haley or to Kelly uh, or to me about that. Maybe we can work something out. Maybe we're not seeing a need that you, that you have skills to meet. Right? And maybe we can create something out of that. Right? So here's my point, all of this, is that just like Esther, your past, whether it's the dark stuff or it's your passions and your skills and your talents, all of those things have been appointed by God. And who knows, maybe like Esther, he has given you those things for a time like this. Right? And here's, here's the kind of the weird thing about this, this message. Um, I don't want you to walk away thinking, like, hey, I want to be like Esther. Like, that's not, like, the point uh, of this message. Because the truth is, Esther is actually just a signpost. Like, Esther is an example, right? But she's actually pointing to something greater than herself. Right? She's pointing to Jesus, right? The one who used his position for our sake, right? Who, who was standing from all eternity, being fully God, right, was willing to give up his position, was willing to risk his authority, his power for our sake. Because the fact is, like, Esther, she risked her life and the comforts of the palace to save her people, right? But the fact is, Jesus didn't just risk his life. Jesus actually gave his life and the comforts of heaven to rescue his people, right? When, when you look at what Jesus did, how he left essentially the palace, right, to come and be with us. Like, that's what's going to motivate you to use what God has given you in order to live out this calling on your life. Like, are you following Jesus' example? You know, his, his power, his skills, his talents, his abilities, using that for the sake of the kingdom. And if you're not doing that yet, like, how can you start doing that? There's a, an author, Steve Garber, and he writes about callings. Um, and he says that you can know your calling by answering one question. And the question is, knowing what you know, what will you do? Knowing what you know, what will you do? We could modify that. You can say, knowing what you know, having experienced what you experienced, having done the things that you've done in life, what will you do? What is that burden? What is that calling that comes from your past experiences? I don't want to put it on the spot, um, but when I think of the answering this question, I think of Haley Ellington. Um, Haley is one of the most bubbly, one of the most inviting people here at SOMA, and we're lucky to have her on staff. Yeah, there she is. Um, can I tell you guys why she's on staff? Because we hired her. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, really, though. Uh, it's because when she came to SoCal from the barren wastelands that are in Northern California, um, she found a connection at SOMA. Right? She felt welcomed. She felt cared for. She felt loved. 
she was down here all by herself at CSUN, and she found a group of people that actually invited her in and welcomed her. Um, and her experience here changed her life. Right? And she's, that means she's extra aware of how uh, some, a place that's inviting or hospitable, uh, an environment like that can change someone's life. And her burden for Soma becoming an inviting and welcoming kind of place comes out of her experience. Right? And we'll, so, like, what's your burden? What's your experiences? How are you using those things to contribute to God's kingdom and to this community? Um, as I call up the band, there might be a few things that you need to do um, as you think about this sort of question, knowing what you know, having experienced what you experienced, what will you do? The first thing that you guys might need to do is you might need to talk to a life group leader about it, um, process that sort of thing with them. Right? You might feel like there's this thing that I need to do that I have a heart for, a burden for, and I can't really contain it. Um, you might need to pray with someone in our prayer corner at the end of the night. Or if you already know what it is, maybe you need to write it on a connection card. There are a bunch of teams that need people, uh, service teams that need people to help out. And maybe you have a passion for one of those things. Or maybe there's a thing on there that we haven't listed. And maybe just fill it out in the connection card. Say, hey, I have a passion for this thing. I want to see someone do this. Write it down. Maybe we can do something about it. Right? Maybe you heard about our mission trip last week uh, when we talked about going to Tanzania. Um, we also mentioned um, uh, at our vision night, if you guys were there, that we're doing a trip to Mexico uh, in, a, in March. Um, if you want to talk about that, catch me outside. How about that? Um, I'll, be, I'll be out there talking about that. Um, real talk, though. <laughs> yeah, did it. Uh, whatever it is, like, I'd encourage you to act on it. All right, don't wait, because the fact is God's kingdom is moving forward. And just like Mordecai said to Esther, like, God is going to accomplish his purposes, whether or not you're a part of it. But luckily, he invites you to be in on it. Right? And you might have been given these things that you're past for a time like this. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I just thank you um, for the ways that you've um, designed us, God. Uh, even for the hard things in our past, Lord, that you use uh, in order to accomplish your purposes, God. And just thinking about how you take dark parts of our life and you orchestrate them and shape them and shift them and mold them to make something beautiful out of that, to make something meaningful so that even like the hard things in our life, they don't have to go to waste. God, I pray... Um, that you would help us to see our sentness. God, that you would help us to see the ways that you're calling us to participate in this kingdom movement, God, that we call the church. Lord, we thank you that you've invited us into that, God, and just the privilege it is to serve you. Pray us in Jesus' name, amen.